We should beware of the demagogues who are ready to declare a trade war against our friends, all while cynically waving the American flag. Huh. Thanks for the good advice, Mr. Reagan. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Nowadays. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From with Pacifica you. Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on Queso. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for as long as we can on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me. From bradblog.com, thank you very much for joining us. I say as long as we can because uh, we rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Normally I wait till the end of the show to mention bradblog.com slash donate. But not enough of you pay attention, so I'll just put it right up here at the front. <laughs> Bradblog.com slash donate if you'd like your broadcast to continue five days a week. All right. Uh, that chuckle you heard was Desiree Doyen. How are you, Desi? I am here. Present. That, uh, that's what you always say. <laughs> yes, not much true. better than that these days, I guess. No, no, it's not. Coming up shortly, our uh, Supreme Correspondent. This month, the great Mark Joseph Stern of Slate on This Week at SCOTUS. As new opinions are being handed down at the end of the U.S. Supreme Court term, including on Thursday on Internet sales tax in a case out of South Dakota and a decision on a very disturbing death penalty case that has received almost zero attention this week, also out of South Dakota. So... Death and taxes in South Dakota. (laughs) That's clever. And much more as uh, several other cases we've been watching closely from the high court and beyond have also been playing out underneath all of the madness this week. We'll talk to Mark about that shortly. And Desi Doyen will be joining us for our latest Green News report. Yes. As the Trump administration took advantage of all the media madness over the past week uh, focused on immigration outrages to do a couple of things that they hope, I think, uh, I think they hope most folks don't notice. Well, yeah, it's kind of impossible for people to notice when there's all of these multiple uh, horrific outrages going on. There are other important things happening, too, and it's 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 hard to focus on any one thing for more than a minute. One of the things I think that uh, they hope you don't notice is that they have rolled back protections to our oceans and lakes that were put in place 
by President Obama in response to the BP Gulf oil spill. So uh, that and more coming up in our GNR a little bit later. But uh, speaking of climate change, uh, Des, I don't know if you saw this, but M- Melania Trump made her surprise visit to the border in Texas on Thursday to see some of these child detention facilities for herself. She was uh, supposed to tour two of them, but only got to see one of them due to reportedly flooding. Yeah. You saw that? Oh, yes. There was a a massive rainstorm that that, uh, slammed the southern Texas area, especially Brownsville, which is right there at the border with Mexico, right at the bottom corner or the southern corner of Texas. And it was, I think, some insane amount of rain in an hour that caused flash flooding. Yeah, And uh, kept her from being able to see the other facility, the one where the the boys are being held in cages in an old Walmart store. That flooding uh, prevented, I guess, her travel there. So um, in any event, as we noted yesterday, before the full text of Donald Trump's executive order reversing his parent child separation policy that he claimed he couldn't reverse before that, uh, in in fact, this uh, executive order has since been published. And in fact, as we suggested yesterday, there is no remedy included in that order for the twenty three hundred kids who are already and still separated from their parents at the border, as I had feared. And moreover, we learned uh, just before air today that the Trump administration, according to The Washington Post, has asked the Pentagon to provide housing on military bases for up to 20,000 migrant children detained after crossing the U.S.-Mexico border. 20,000. And the Pentagon has agreed to that request. Uh, Democratic uh, Senator, uh, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer has now asked for an accounting of just how many children are actually being currently held and in what conditions, given that nobody really seems to know and reports of very disturbing conditions are now coming out from some of these facilities. On Wednesday evening, the AP reported on claims from a federal lawsuit charging abuse including beatings and what amounts to torture at one facility. Virginia's governor has now ordered state officials on Thursday to investigate the abuse claims made by children at an immigration detention facility who said they were beaten while handcuffed and locked up for long periods in solitary confinement, left nude and Mm. shivering in concrete cells, according to the Associated Press. Those charges were included in a federal civil rights lawsuit with a half dozen sworn statements from Latino youths uh, held at the Shenandoah Valley Juvenile Center in Virginia. The AP uh, report also cited an adult who saw bruises and broken bones. The children said were caused by guards. Children as young as 14 said the guards there stripped them of their clothes strapped them to chairs with bags placed over their heads. Which uh, brings back, brings to mind the torture at Abu Ghraib that I have talked about for so many years and criticized the Obama administration for doing nothing to bring accountability for those who who uh, who carried that torture out, those war crimes out, which seem to now be uh, allegedly are being repeated at least to some extent in some of these facilities. But that wasn't even the most troubling of the reports along these lines to come out on Wednesday night. The nonprofit Center for Investigative Reporting 
Their Reveal website revealed that a separate federal lawsuit alleges some children have been injected with drugs at one facility. According to Matt Smith and Ara Bogato at Reveal, children held at the Shiloh Treatment Center, a government contractor south of Houston that houses immigrant minors, have described being held down and injected, according to these federal court filings. The lawsuit alleges the kids were told they would uh, they would not be released or see their parents unless they took medication and that they were only receiving vitamins. Parents and children themselves told attorneys the drugs rendered them unable to walk, afraid of people, wanting to sleep constantly, according to the affidavits filed in this suit. One mother said her child fell repeatedly, hitting her head and ended up in a wheelchair. A child described trying to open a window and being hurled against the door by a Shiloh supervisor who then choked her until she fainted. Another recounted another child recounted being made to take pills in the morning at noon at night. The staff told me, quote, that some of the pills are vitamins because they think I need to gain weight. The vitamins changed about two times a day. Each time I feel different, she said. Shiloh is among 71 companies that receive funds from the federal government to house and supervise immigrant children deemed unaccompanied by minors, uh, deemed uh, unaccompanied minors. And essentially, as soon as they separated these kids from their parents, they were then deemed unaccompanied minors. Uh, these allegations, frankly, seem unthinkable, but apparently they're well documented in these court filings as reported by AP and the Center for Investigative Reporting. Both very legitimate sources uh, sounding the alarm here about these disturbing allegations. Hopefully they're being well covered today because Angie Coiro is going to be in for us on our next broadcast. And I've been trying to get to uh, this other this other story all week as pretty much everything is being buried by Trump's unspeakably cruel immigration madness. So while all of this has been going on, I uh, don't know if you noticed, but the Dow has quietly lost about 600 points over the past few days, just since Monday, in large part in response to the other havoc that Donald Trump is causing, his trade wars with friends and foes alike, which could wreak havoc, some pretty terrible havoc on, uh, on the U.S. economy. So I just kind of want to toss up a flare uh, here in regard to what could be the next self-inflicted crisis that we will all be facing, which, uh, by the way, could also end up having more of an effect on the November elections than is currently apparent. All right. On Monday evening of this past week, sort of lost amidst the din of the uh, border chaos, the White House said that if China goes through with its promise to retaliate against U.S. tariffs announced last week, the U.S. will impose tariffs on an additional $200 billion worth of Chinese goods. The Trump administration said Friday that it's going to impose a 25% tariff on $50 billion worth of Chinese exports. Those amount to taxes on the American people, by the way. China, uh, claiming the U.S. had launched a trade war, retaliated almost immediately, outlining its own tariffs on U.S. goods worth $50 billion. The escalating conflict, according to Reuters, uh, between the world's two largest economies has rattled markets and companies over the past week, which fear disruption to their global supply chain. 
The Chinese Commerce Ministry reacted quickly to Trump's announcement, accusing the U.S. of, quote, extreme pressure and extortionist behavior, warning it would, quote, strike back hard. The Trump tariffs uh, will be enacted in two waves, more than uh, these are the original Trump tariffs on China. More than 800 exports, about $34 billion worth, will be subject to tariffs starting in July. But after China said they'd retaliate in kind, Trump directed his trade representative to identify $200 billion worth of Chinese goods for an additional 10 percent tariffs, which would be enacted, quote, if China refuses to change its practices and also if it insists on going forward with the new tariffs that it recently announced. Again, in response to the tariffs we placed on them. Trump also said that if China retaliates yet again, the U.S. would pursue additional tariffs on another $200 billion worth of goods. So this is where we are headed. And that doesn't even include the tariffs on our friends like Canada and the EU and Mexico and the retaliatory tariffs they have said they plan to respond with. That may be one reason that Donald Trump's supposed idol and uh, certainly the patron saint of republicanism and so-called free trade, free markets over the last 40 years or so, Ronald Reagan himself, was virulently opposed to these kind of tariffs and trade wars, as he explained in one of his presidential weekly addresses way back in 1988. Our peaceful trading partners are not our enemies. They are our allies. We should beware of the demagogues who are ready to declare a trade war against our friends, weakening our economy, our national security, and the entire free world, all while cynically waving the American flag. The expansion of the international economy is not a foreign invasion. It is an American triumph one we worked hard to achieve, and something central to our vision of a peaceful and prosperous world of freedom. After the Second World War, America led the way to dismantle trade barriers and create a world trading system that set the stage for decades of unparalleled economic growth. Yes, back in 1776, our founding fathers believed that free trade was worth fighting for, and we can celebrate their victory, because today, Trade is at the core of the alliance that secure the peace and guarantee our freedom. It is the source of our prosperity and the path to an even brighter future for America. That was Ronald Reagan back in 1998 talking about the demagogues prepared to launch trade wars wrapped in national security and the flag. Sound familiar? On a recent Green News report, uh, Desi Doyen, you reported on how this trade war is already hurting one of Trump's biggest constituencies, the U.S. energy industry. Yep. Which will be hurt because they ship a lot of coal and oil to China. So uh, that seems wildly unproductive to both the U.S. economy itself and to Donald Trump and Republicans. But it's not just the energy industry that is now being threatened. Uh, President Donald Trump's tariff battle with key buyers of U.S. apples, soybeans and corn threatens uh, the support of some of his biggest backers, U.S. farmers now seeing their livelihoods in jeopardy. According to Reuters, farmers overwhelmingly supported Donald Trump in the 2016 election, but now those same farmers are seeing crop prices fall and export markets shrink 
after Trump's tariffs triggered a wave of retaliation from buyers of U.S. apples, cheese, potatoes, bourbon, and soybeans. Brian Kuehl, executive director of Farmers for Free Trade, said, quote, a lot of people in the ag community were willing to give President Trump the benefit of the doubt, but now the impact is really starting to hit. His group along with the U.S. Apple Association, began running television ads on Tuesday attacking Trump and his tariffs in Pennsylvania and Michigan. Apple-growing states that could play a role in which party controls Congress uh, after this November. And even before all of this, U.S. farmers were facing a tough year, but now an even more bearish tone hangs over ag markets due to trade spats with NAFTA partners Canada and Mexico, plus mounting tensions with China and Europe. After Trump imposed tariffs on steel and aluminum imports, Mexico imposed a 20 percent tariff on imports of apples, potatoes and cranberries from the U.S. last week. Trump imposed $50 billion in tariffs on China. Beijing retaliated. China's tariffs alone could contribute to, 30 per, to a 30% drop in income for Ohio corn and soybean farmers this year. If the tariffs stay in place, net farm income in Ohio could drop as much as 63% in 2019. The American Soybean Association said it was disappointed and for weeks has been imploring the Trump administration to find non-tariff solutions to address their concerns with China. The group added the White House has ignored its requests for meetings. So just a, a heads up there, this fantastic economy that Trump and the Republicans keep citing in hopes that you will reward them with a vote this November. It may be built on a very rocky premise that could collapse uh, as it did suddenly, as it did under George W. Bush, particularly since the GOP has been rolling back protections for banks and the economy itself. And B, this particular madness is likely to harm Republicans in Trump's base as much or more than anyone else. So I just kind of want to send up a flare about all of that, since this is all happening in the background this week with everything else, uh, but the markets are certainly noticing, and you may want to as well. All right, speaking of the economy, a new opinion on on sales tax uh, taxes across the country was released today by the U.S. Supreme Court with some strange bedfellows joining in the majority opinion on that. That and more from uh, this week from the high court and uh, less high courts as well, I guess, with Mark Joseph Stern of Slate. Next on the Bradcast, I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. <laughs> Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Certainly is. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. 
1967, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that states could not force mail-order catalog companies to collect sales tax unless a buyer lived in a state where the company had a physical presence, a retail store, a headquarters, or a distribution center, for example. The court reasoned at the time then that the volume of mail-order business was minor compared to in-store sales and that catalog companies would face too big a burden in having to figure out the correct sales tax for uh, really thousands of uh, state and local jurisdictions around the country, given the widely differing rates uh, in all of those jurisdictions. That 1967 ruling has been a boon to online merchants decades later, many of whom still allow consumers to purchase goods without being charged sales tax or having to pay it themselves. But a 5-4 to four ruling on Thursday released by the U.S. Supreme Court says those days are now officially over. Justice Anthony Kennedy who uh, wrote the majority opinion in South Dakota v. Wayfair, said the physical presence rule put brick-and-mortar businesses at a disadvantage because they had to charge sales tax, but Internet retailers did not. That rule, he wrote, quote, prevented market participants from competing on an even playing field. That's just the latest decision from the high court this week as they scramble to release all of their opinions after a very busy term in time to allow the justices to get out of Dodge by July for their long summer recess. Must be nice. Here to explain that ruling as well as several others from the court and around the country this week, as promised, is our recently dubbed Supreme Correspondent, this month, Slate legal reporter Mark Joseph Stern, as we try to keep up with what should be a very busy release schedule from the court this month, but is actually happening at a much slower pace than I think I'd uh, I'd have predicted at this point as we're getting very late into the month. Mark Joseph Stern, welcome back. And are you as surprised as me that the court seems to be barely rolling out what is still a huge slate of important cases we're still waiting on opinions for? No, I am not surprised, because I think that this court likes to play games uh, and likes to tease us and really agonize us as much as possible with anti-climaxes around every turn. Uh, and I think that this week was no different. We are now getting opinions tomorrow. That's the kind of last-minute surprise twist that this court likes to pull on us. I'm not surprised that they have been just dribbling out these uh, remaining decisions does, at a glacial pace. Does, does any of this uh, signal that maybe there's problems, maybe there's disagreement, maybe they can't come to, uh, you know, decisions on some of these uh, big cases that we're still waiting on? Well, that's always a possibility, and it's interesting because the court will sometimes put over cases for re-argument the next term, and will often wait until the last day to announce that it's doing so, suggesting that there was this scrambling behind the scenes to try to come to a resolution, uh, and they just couldn't figure it out. But I don't think that's what's going on now. I think that the, the justices are just wrapping up their opinions, their clerks are working overtime to 
cross every T. And, you know, in a big case like the travel ban, it was only argued two months ago, and uh, it has major implications for millions of people. So the court is trying to get it right. Unfortunately, there are not five justices on this court who consistently do get it right. Well, let's discuss uh, on matters of not or getting it right or not. Uh, today's a sales tax ruling before touching on several, I think, much more important cases, at least in regard to American democracy and civil rights this week. Justice Kennedy wrote the opinion that allows states to require sales tax now to be paid by state customers uh, for, for online sales, even though the companies in question may have no brick-and-mortar presence in the state. Uh, in this uh, specific case, it, this was South Dakota who brought this challenge. I know I'm agreeing with a number of the right-wingers on the court here, Mark, but this seems like uh, basic fairness, uh, good for local businesses who are getting killed by online purchases and for state tax revenues in many states where decades of tax cuts have led to budget shortfalls and cuts to social services and so forth. Am I uh, and uh, they wrong about that? No, I absolutely agree with you. And for the record, so does Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who provided the crucial fifth vote for this decision, uh, along with a number of conservatives. Uh, I think this decision was just plain common sense, correcting an error that, as you note, the court made more than 50 years ago. I don't even think that decision was right when it was decided. Mm. This idea that there has to be a brick-and-mortar store in a state in order for that state to collect sales tax on purchases not made in the store, that's just arbitrary. It's not a rule that derives from the Constitution. It's not a rule that even complies with common sense. Uh, it didn't make sense when it involved sales catalogs sent through the mail. Uh, and it certainly didn't make sense in the early 90s when the court reaffirmed that precedent and applied it to the Internet. Why in the world should I not have to pay sales tax on something I buy on Amazon uh, because I live in D.C. and there may be no Amazon stores here, but someone three miles away across the border in Maryland does have to pay sales tax because Amazon has a store in Baltimore, which is still way far away from where they're living. It's a totally capricious standard that the court created itself. This was the court fixing a problem that it made. Uh, and so I say cheers to Kennedy, cheers to the justices in the majority. This was the right decision. And again, it just restores a, a regime of common sense where the court had previously muddied the waters. As you note, uh, Mark, Ruth Bader Ginsburg signed on to this 5-4 to four decision that was written by uh, Justice Kennedy, but, you know, it was not the usual right-wing coalition. Here we had Kennedy joined by uh, Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, and then, yes, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So what the... And on the other side... The uh, dissent was written by Chief Justice um, uh, John Roberts and joined by the three other liberals on the court, uh, also leading me to say what the. So <laughs> what, what, what was the uh, what was the dissent from Roberts and the uh, three other liberals other than Ruth Bader Ginsburg here? So what Roberts said was quite interesting because he did not defend these precedents on the merits. In fact, he acknowledged that they were wrong. Uh, but instead, what Robert said was, look, we have had this rule in some form or another for half a century. 
the states and the federal government have gotten used to it. They have adjusted around it. Uh, it is not for us to now go in and reverse ourselves midstream just because we've gotten enough members of the court who are willing to overturn this precedent. This is now a problem for Congress to deal with. Uh, and so Robert's opinion is really about uh, judicial restraint. He says, yes, we created this problem. Yes, we've been wrong all along. Uh, but Congress knows it. Congress has been discussing ways to fix it. And we should not now disrupt the democratic process um, by reversing ourselves. We should let Congress, let lawmakers mm. go in and fix it for us. Seems like pretty weak sauce coming from John Roberts, uh, be, uh, who who gutted the Voting Rights Act, which we've also had for 50 years and we've gotten used to it and it hasn't presented any real problems. Uh, but nonetheless, I guess uh, John Roberts uh, picks and chooses when he uh, wishes to have that opinion. Uh, and, and just to note here, South Dakota had said in the uh, case that uh, states could pick up some $34 billion a year if the court allowed them to tax uh, all Internet sales. The uh, it would amount to about fifty million dollars a year alone for South Dakota. That's uh, a lot of money, actually, when it comes to these uh, state budgets and roads and schools, et cetera. No. Yes, it is, and I think that partly explains why Justice Ginsburg crossed over the ideological lines uh, and joined with the other conservative justices. Uh, these uh, these taxes are a really big deal, especially in a red state that has, as you said, defunded its public services. Uh, and the Supreme Court had, for 50 years, tied states' hands uh, and prohibited them from collecting as much taxes on online purchases and, and, and mail purchases as they should be. And so I think Ginsburg's reasoning uh, is quite persuasive. I think she probably would have written the opinion differently. Um, but the bottom line here is uh, this commerce is moving through these states. The customers live there. They are ordering this stuff to their houses. They should have to pay taxes. The company should have to collect those taxes. And the state should be able to use those taxes to uh, improve their roads and school systems and public services and so on. Uh, and so I, I think just on all sides, uh, it is a, a compelling and correct uh, conclusion that the court has reached. It's going to be good for state and local government. And honestly, it's going to be good for consumers who now operate under a single uniform rule. There's not going to be this weird gamesmanship where companies are trying to keep their stores out of states mm -hmm. just so that uh, customers in those states don't have to pay tax. Yeah, and that's another problem as well. Uh, the, the damage that online sales are doing to uh, uh, you know local businesses, malls shutting down, local jobs that are lost. So it, you know, it seems to me if they can be helped out in any way, that seems like it's good for everybody. And then, you know, we get the social services uh, out of the, the this uh, tax money and every, this just seems to make sense. So I hate to say it, but uh, Mark, uh, you and I agree with Neil Gorsuch, Clarence <laughs> Thomas and Sam Alito. All right. In another decision uh, this week by the court, also uh, one related to South Dakota, but much more troubling, frankly, uh, even as uh, this has received very little attention other than from you, Mark Joseph Stern at Slate. Thank you very much. The court declined to hear a disturbing case that, as you write, clears the way for South Dakota 
to execute a man who, who may have been sentenced to death by a homophobic jury because he is gay. Uh, what? And uh, how can it be that the court effectively ruled against this man simply by declining to even hear this uh, troubling case? Yeah, it, troubling is one word for it, even outrageous, I would say. Uh, so what happened here is this guy, he's almost certainly guilty of a crime. He was robbing a store, he got caught, uh, and he stabbed the guy who caught him, uh, killing him. That is a terrible, terrible crime. The man deserves to be in prison. Uh, but in South Dakota, uh, there were two possible penalties for murder uh, at the time. There was life in prison without parole and capital punishment. Um, and so when this guy, Rhines was on trial, uh, the jury said, well, we're having trouble deciding if we should send him to prison uh, or if we should send him to, to be executed. And sent the judge a note asking a bunch of questions, basically saying, we're worried that because this man is gay, which was known to them at the time, that he's going to have too much fun in prison because he'll be able to have sex with other men in prison so we want you to assure us that if we send him to prison he won't be able to mix with other inmates and other quote young men uh, and be able to enjoy himself with them uh, the judge refused to answer the questions because they were improper the jury sentenced this guy to death uh, and then, after the sentence came down, um, a number of jurors uh, signed sworn declarations saying that during deliberations, the jurors had actively discussed uh, the defendant's homosexuality and essentially conceded that they were going to send him to death instead of life without parole because he was gay and said they were disgusted by his homosexuality, that they felt it wasn't right, and that they could not in good conscience allow him to enjoy himself in an all-men's prison, oh. uh, and so they had no choice but to kill him. <sighs> That's just amazing to me, and this is not uh, speculation. Uh, this is based, I mean, there was actually notes that the jury, as you described, sent to the judge asking about this stuff. Now, that said, can't a jury talk about anything they want as they're figuring out these uh, cases? Can't they decide pretty much on any basis amongst themselves whether to find someone guilty or, or what to sentence them to? Well, that's the big question here. Uh, the Sixth Amendment guarantees criminal defendants an impartial jury. Uh, and so generally it is true that deliberations are secret uh, and unimpeachable, that jurors can't come forward and say, hey, I was really troubled by this uh, after the fact. Deliberations are sort of sacrosanct. Uh, but the Supreme Court ruled last year, uh, and I think quite reasonably, that if there is evidence of racial bias in the jury room, evidence that the jury sentenced an individual uh, due to racial stereotypes or racial animus, that the verdict and the sentence can be impeached after the fact, that a judge can revisit the sentence 
uh, and maybe even hold a new trial uh, because jury deliberations were impermissibly tainted by racism. Uh, and so this case came to the court posing, I think, a very similar question, saying, well, if that rule applies for racism, mm -hmm. shouldn't it apply to homophobia, too? You know, the court has said that anti-gay animus is unconstitutional, uh, has ruled a number of times on the fundamental rights uh, of gay people. Uh, and so this defendant said, look, I was subject to uh, a, a partial jury, a biased jury, uh, that used uh, anti-gay stereotypes in deciding to send me to the execution chamber. Shouldn't I be able to contest that sentence, uh, contest its constitutionality? And unfortunately, the Supreme Court just turned him away and said, we don't want to hear your case. Not a single justice wrote separately to say that he or she was troubled by this case. Uh, that is really disturbing. Uh, I think it suggests that this court is, if not pulling back on its protection of gay Americans, uh, it is not eager to reach out and deal with new issues here. Um, and so I, I'm really worried about what this suggests, mm. where the court is going, uh, and whether the liberals have sort of lost their appetite to fight these issues and to force the conservatives to confront them. This is very troubling. I mean, so it would, it would have taken, what, just four? justices uh, to, to uh, say yes in order to hear the case? and Yeah, that's exactly right. And even if four justices don't vote to say yes, mm -hmm. uh, the, the justices can write separately to say we really should have taken this case. You know, that happens fairly frequently, uh, and it sort of lays down a marker for future um, appellants to say, well, Justice Ginsburg wrote in this case that she would have voted yes, so maybe we have a fighting chance. But not even Justice Ginsburg wrote separately here. It seemed to be a unanimous rejection. Uh, and so this guy is almost certainly going to be executed unless he can find some other uh, safety valve. He is pretty much condemned uh, and, again, was condemned to the execution chamber because of his sexual orientation. Because he, had I committed the very same crime, and I don't happen to be gay, had I committed the very same crime in the very same way, uh, from what we know from this jury, I would have received life in prison rather than execution. That is exactly right. And the jury wow. all but admitted that. Wow. Uh, and still the sentence stands. What a grotesque injustice, once again underscoring just uh, how much injustice is involved in the death penalty, period. That shouldn't even come up. Uh as a consideration. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Uh, boy, geez. All right. The biggest uh, decision, uh, moving on, try to get through a few of them here, uh, or at least the most closely anticipated and watched this week from the high court, concerns partisan gerrymandering in two separate states, though the decisions on this uh, affect every state in the union. We discussed this in some detail on Monday when the decisions were uh, handed down with the uh, GOP gerrymandering author and uh, expert Dave Daly, uh, our friend who has uh, put out a book whose name we cannot say on the radio. <laughs> but an excellent book. Yes, it is. It's an unspeakable title. <laughs> but uh, you, I want to get uh, your take uh, essentially on the court here punting uh, two cases, uh, one out of Wisconsin where the uh, Republicans were found to have unconstitutionally gerrymandered all of the state assembly seats for an unlawful partisan advantage, uh, and the other out of Maryland, where Democrats gerrymandered a U.S. House district to flip it from red to blue. The lower courts 
uh, wanted to get rid of those those gerrymanders, essentially. But both cases were sent back down to uh, to lower courts. Yes, uh, a major punt, as you know, and I, I think that this just reflects the ongoing battle for the soul of Justice Kennedy, right? The, the conservative justices, the hardcore conservatives, they do not want the courts striking down partisan gerrymanders. We can speculate as to why. We know that most of them do benefit Republicans. Uh, but they don't, they don't care about partisan gerrymandering. Uh, the liberal justices do very much so. Uh, and it seems that neither block was able to persuade Justice Kennedy to join their side uh, and issue a definitive ruling on this. And so instead we got this very, very unsatisfying punt that makes it uh, more difficult for plaintiffs to prove uh, that they were injured by gerrymanders to take their case to court. Uh, it was mostly unanimous. Uh, but Justice Kagan wrote a separate concurring opinion joined by the other liberals uh, that sort of gives plaintiffs a roadmap for a future challenge, uh, shows them how they could still possibly win, uh, and cites Justice Kennedy's previous opinions very heavily. So not all is lost, and there is a case on partisan gerrymandering that will reach the court out of North Carolina yeah. next term. Uh, but this was obviously a huge disappointment, a huge missed opportunity, um, because this could have been a moment that the Supreme Court stands up for American democracy and the First Amendment, uh, and instead it sort of cowered uh, and hid and ran away. That, in that case you mentioned, Mark, uh, out of North Carolina, that found uh, the entire U.S. House map in North Carolina, for the first time, the entire U.S. House map was unlawful, unconstitutional, because it was a Republican partisan gerrymander. Uh, I wonder, can we learn anything about, uh, does this tell us anything about whether Justice Kennedy plans to stick around for another year and uh, maybe have another stab at it with the North Carolina uh, U.S. House uh, map case? Well, I think Justice Kennedy is going to stick around no matter what. Uh, but yeah, I think that is definitely appealing to him, uh, in part because the North Carolina case is, I think, a better case than either of the other two. The other two were fine. But in North Carolina, you have a series of smoking guns that are just jaw-dropping. Republican map makers boasting in public that they drew this map explicitly for the purpose of favoring Republicans and disfavoring Democrats. It's a really good case for voting rights advocates. Uh, and so it does give Kennedy that clean kill shot uh, if he wants to secure his legacy uh, on gerrymandering and finally put real constitutional limits on political redistricting. That would be uh, nice. Before It would be really nice. <laughs> especially, but, you know, yeah. With Kennedy, it's just a coin toss, as always. D uh, Dave Daly found a slim silver lining here in at least the court didn't give a, uh, a thumbs up to partisan gerrymandering with their decision. Do you share that uh, thin shred of optimism on that point? Yeah, absolutely, because I think if Kennedy had decided that he was going to give up trying to stop partisan gerrymandering, he would have just joined with the conservatives and they would have written a, a terrible opinion saying partisan gerrymandering is A-OK. -okay. The fact that they didn't do that means we've got to try again, but of course trying again is costly, it's time-consuming, and it's really a pain. <laughs> Trying to find uh, something uh, to be optimistic about here. And so on that note, let's uh, let's go to uh, Chris Kobach. This will 
This is always fun. Uh, one of uh, everyone's favorite uh, and incredibly incompetent GOP voter fraud fraudster, Chris Kobach, Secretary of State of Kansas. He was smacked down this week as his proof of citizenship voter registration requirement was finally killed by a George W. Bush appointed federal judge after a full trial earlier this year, and he was slapped with humiliating sanctions by the judge for his repeated courtroom antics as he uh, uh, represented both himself and the state of Kansas himself. Uh, And the court, the judge here, demanded that he take six hours of continuing education law school to learn basic courtroom litigator skills. Uh, Mark, we spoke with one of the ACLU litigators who actually was in the courtroom for the full debacle, Sophia Lynn Lakin, earlier in the week. But before I ask you about what Kobach, incredibly enough, still appears to be doing on his own Kansas Secretary of State website even today, uh, do you care to enjoy any uh, quick schadenfreude on any of those uh, points? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I would only note that um, the ruling came down on Monday afternoon and ordered immediate compliance. Uh, on Tuesday morning, Kobach's office told a reporter that it believes the word immediately was open to interpretation uh, and told election officials that they should continue to ask for proof of citizenship did not bring those election officials into compliance until Wednesday afternoon, two days after the ruling had come down, and as you just said, has still not updated its own Secretary of State website to reflect the state of the law. I think there is a decent chance that we could see even more sanctions for mm. Kobach after this. Um, so I- I'm just going to hold off part of the schadenfreude to see what the judge does next, because we could see even more continued legal education requirements for this guy, or maybe even, I don't know, uh, forcing him to publicly apologize. The limits are, are the possibilities are endless. Kobach is such a clown that this judge is going to finally have to bring down the hammer, and I think it's going to be a glorious sight. He's, uh, he's a clown, but he's actually running for governor in the state of Kansas. He's still uh, got a primary he's got to get through. Uh, he had been considered the front runner there. I don't know if this is going to affect that case any uh, at, at all. But to be clear, Mark, a spokesman for his office, because the judge said you have to immediately notify counties. And she I think she underscored. Didn't she say something like uh, given your record of uh, ignoring yes, court did, orders? Yeah. Uh, yes, he did. Immediately uh, notify them. And the spokesman literally said, quote, I think immediately is kind of open to interpretation. And here we are almost a week later. And uh, yeah, online at the state. This Now, he has apparently told the uh, uh, the counties that they should stop asking for documentary proof of citizenship. But on his own Kansas Secretary of State website, It still says, quote, you must submit evidence of U.S. citizenship on the online voter registration uh, page. I I asked uh, uh, Sophia Lakin if she had ever seen a judge slap an attorney with these type of sanctions, uh, ordering them to attend law school, uh, much less the secretary of state here who fought to get himself the powers, the only powers granted to any secretary of state to actually prosecute fraud crimes himself. Uh, I asked her if she had seen anything quite as unusual and humiliating as these uh, sanctions against Kobach. Have you ever seen anything like that in your history of covering these sorts of cases? 
You know, I, I was trying to think about that, and that's why I'm wondering what she'll do next. There have been occasional cases of escalation. Uh, one judge famously required a defendant to wear a sign uh, apologizing for his crime outside of the scene of the crime. I believe it was some kind of minor theft. Uh, but to to smack down a public official this way, to force them to go back to legal education and relearn the rules that they should know, uh, as far as I'm aware, that is pretty much unprecedented. Yeah. So this is a this is a delight beyond what even I had expected. <laughs> because don't forget, yeah. he was already required to pay part of the ACLU's legal fees uh, when he was previously held in contempt of court. Yeah, that's what she said. Uh, Sophia said about fifty thousand dollars. Of course, that's probably Kansas taxpayer money, and uh, they've already had uh, you know been forced to cut uh, funding for schools and roads and everything else. The Kansas Supreme Court has actually ordered the legislature to pay up for schools uh, due to all of the uh, tax cuts that this, uh, uh, I want to say previously red state, but still red state uh, has ordered. That may not be such a red state after all, uh, given all they've gone through. We'll see what happens this November. Uh, Very quickly, Mark Joseph Stern, a lot of cases, important ones. Still in the Supreme Court hopper uh, to supposedly be released by the end of the month. What can we expect to see in the next week? Any best guesses before we have you on next week to talk about it? Well, I think the Supreme Court is going to hobble public sector unions by preventing them from collecting dues from non-union members. Mm. That's inevitable. I think I worry the Supreme Court is going to uphold the travel ban. Uh, I do think the court may put real limits on the government's ability to collect uh, information about where your cell phone has been from your provider. That's going to be a, a bright spot, I hope. Uh, but I also think the court's going to end up striking down California's disclosure requirements for crisis pregnancy centers. So mm. this is not going to be a good term for progressives. I think everyone just needs to buckle in and focus on November. Fantastic. Uh, You've given us much to look forward to over the next two (laughs) weeks. Uh, We will be talking to you throughout. Mark Joseph Stern, he covers the law, the court system, the U.S. Supreme Court, LGBTQ issues, and much more for Slate.com, where you should uh, read his work on a daily basis and follow him on the Twitters at MJS underscore DC. Thanks, Mark. We'll talk to you again very soon. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Okay, quick break, and we are back with more fun on the Green News Report with Desi Doyen. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Desi Doyen, I, uh, I notice, uh, just by way of coincidence... 
We actually have two pieces of audio on today's program from 1988. Yes. Our first one from uh, Ronald Reagan earlier, a warning about trade demagogues. And the next one, well, coming up on our latest Green News Report. They called it a public relations nightmare, if released. Blocked water study finally released reveals widespread chemical contamination. Most of the food crops that we consume showed these nutrient reduction. Increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere reduces the nutritional value of food. Plus, the earth is warmer in 1988 than at any time in the history of instrumental measurements. It's been 30 years since Dr. James Hansen first warned Congress about climate change. 30 years and counting. All of those stories and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Scott Pruitt is trying to protect you from finding out water is bad. If it is, which it's not, because what study? (laughs) This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, they've been hiding this study for a long, long time for some reason, and then they decided this week, with everything that's going on in the country, would be the week they release it. I guess. Yeah, that widespread water contamination study had been blocked from public release by the Trump administration out of fear that it would cause, quote, a public relations nightmare. And for good reason. The Centers for Disease Control quietly published that study online on Wednesday, and it is not good. As predicted, the study shows dangerous toxic chemicals known as PFOA and PFAS used in nonstick pans and other consumer products are widespread in public water systems and military bases around the country, and the study found those chemicals are far more harmful at far lower levels than previously thought. The study recommends that the Environmental Protection Agency set the safe threshold for these chemicals up to 10 times lower than they are currently. So when they were originally blocking this report, they said it would be a public relations nightmare, but they're releasing it on one of the craziest, busiest uh, uh, news weeks, and that's saying quite a bit that we've seen in a long time. So will anybody actually notice this study? Um, probably not. And it's also highly unlikely that any action will be taken by the Trump EPA to address any toxic chemicals in the U.S. water supply. Well, that part goes without saying. Well, this week, the EPA faced a court-ordered deadline to propose new standards for chemical spills from industrial facilities. That was in the wake of a toxic coal ash spill into a West Virginia river back in 2014. The EPA on Wednesday published that regulatory proposal to regulate those chemicals and concluded that no new rules are needed. (laughs) Of course they did. And President Trump this week rescinded President Obama's protections for the oceans and the Great Lakes that were put in place in the wake of the catastrophic 2010 BP oil disaster in the Gulf of Mexico. Trump's new executive order instead orders offshore oil and gas drilling to be prioritized and calls for more industrial development in and around the oceans and the Great Lakes. He's calling for more industrial development around these 
precious resources. Indeed, he is. Okay. Meanwhile, a disturbing first-of-its-kind study has troubling long-term implications for the global food supply. Published in the journal Nature, it finds that rising carbon dioxide emissions appear to reduce the nutritional value of food crops. More CO2 does make plants grow bigger, but it turns out that too much CO2 is like junk food for plants, increasing production of simple carbohydrates at the expense of essential nutrients like protein, zinc, iron, and vitamins in staple food crops like rice, corn, and wheat, which are primary food sources for billions of people around the world. So those global warming deniers who said that, well, even if the globe is warming, this will be good because we'll grow more food, plants need carbon dioxide. Even if they are right about that aspect, they are wrong that somehow this makes everything better. That's correct. Finally, June 23rd marks the 30th anniversary of the day that NASA scientist Dr. James Hansen first testified to Congress that rising CO2 emissions from the burning of fossil fuels was triggering dangerous global warming. Here's Dr. Hansen's original testimony back in 1988. Our computer climate simulations indicate that the greenhouse effect is already large enough to begin to affect the probability of extreme events such as summer heat waves. Altogether, This evidence represents a very strong case, in my opinion, that the greenhouse effect has been detected and it is changing our climate now. 30 years and millions of dollars in fossil fuel industry-funded denial propaganda later, all of Hansen's predictions in 1988 have proven roughly accurate. In an interview with AP this week, Dr. Hansen said that he wishes he had been wrong. While some actions have been taken and the transition to renewable energy is gaining momentum globally, 30 years later, global warming's impacts are no longer in the future. They are now. For much more on all of those reports and the ones we couldn't get to, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, or iTunes. Find us, follow us, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyle. And this has been your Green News Report. The more you ignore me, the closer I get. You're wasting your time. So there you have it, Des. Uh, Not one, but two warnings from the deep archives of 1988 against uh, Donald Trump. And what we're seeing, uh, what are we, 30 years later? Yes. 40 years later? 30 years later, exactly. Yep. Uh, from uh, Reagan on uh, trade against demagogues wrapping themselves in the flag and James Hansen warning about the coming climate crisis. Which is now here. Which is now here. All right. Thank you very much, Des. Uh, our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Slate's Mark Joseph Stern, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's always appreciated. Uh, if you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Though do please consider stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to leave a one-time donation or a regular monthly, automated monthly donation to help us stay on your public airwaves. We don't take corporate or uh, political money we uh, rely on your support you can drop me email if you like i'm bradcast at bradblog.com and on the facebooks and the twitters i am the brad blog hope to see you there angie coiro in for us on our next thrilling bradcast until we meet again i'm brad friedman good luck world